0: From Toronto, Canada, the Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren, and welcome aboard. First order of business: always a pleasure to welcome a new affiliate, KGBR FM, Medford, Oregon, ninety-two point seven. And uh, just went on their website. First of all, uh, thanks for uh, you know bringing me aboard. Delighted to be part of the KGBR. FM or The Bridge Family, I should say, and uh, went on their website. First thing I went on, I noticed, of course, I'm very happy to be part of KGBR. They have the Rolling Stones prominently displayed on the homepage, a big Rolling Stones fan. And it's a thrill to be on an FM, an adult contemporary rock station, because I'm kind of a classic rock guy, if you uh, didn't know that. Uh, but on the KGBR FM uh, homepage, they have a section or a page entitled The Moron Patrol, so I naturally gravitated towards that, clicked on that, and they feature a YouTube video of an inebriated gentleman riding a -a ride-a-mower. He's being uh, asked to stop the mower because he's obviously drunk by a police officer. He refuses, and then he's tasered. So that's the uh, the Moron Patrol at KGBRFM, Medford, Oregon. Tonight, Episode 6 of our On Again, Off Again a series on JFK we call JFK Connecting the Dots. And if you don't know or haven't been following, every couple of months we hit you with a couple of uh, installments back-to-back, this week, next week, with uh, James Eugenio, our assassination researcher. And the author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. And as I say, this is week six, and we're going to continue this right on up until November 22nd, as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. The murder. We often we forget to use that word, right? Assassination tends to be very clinical, but this was a murder, a cold-blooded murder, not only of a president, but of a husband, a father. We're sort of dissecting it uh, and, and coming at it from different angles. I like to say we're coming at you in more ways than Louis Tiont. Real baseball fans will understand that analogy. And tonight, in Episode 6, we're going to examine the JFK assassination through the lens of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Now, what was the House Select Committee on Assassinations, you ask? Well, that was established in 1976. To investigate not only the assassination of John F. Kennedy, but also, people forget, uh, it was also formed to, to investigate the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr., and also the shooting of Alabama Governor George Wallace. And the committee uh, did its work, investigated, and concluded in 1978, issued a final report, and concluded, and people also forget this, it concluded that Kennedy was very likely assassinated as a result of a conspiracy, obviously in stark contrast to the work of the Warren Commission a decade earlier. However, as we are about to discover in this hour of the program, what started out with very high expectations and high hopes that this House Select Committee on Assassinations was going to do a thorough job, finally investigate it and and look at the evidence, re-examine the autopsy. And of course, this committee came about largely because one year earlier, the Sapruder film, was viewed by millions of Americans for the very first time. When people saw that, there was such a clamor and such an uproar. And a copy of that film fell into the hands of a U.S. representative, and he sort of took the bull by the horns and demanded or started a bill that eventually led to the House Select Committee on assassinations. However, as we're about to discover, as I say, all those high expectations quickly went away. And it's all detailed, actually, in Chapter 15 of Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuban, the Garrison case. James D. Eugenio, welcome once again. How are you, my friend?
1: Oh, not bad. Not bad. I I should correct something, though. It, It didn't investigate the Wallace shooting. It was only the Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, and the Martin Luther King case. I didn't. Okay.
0: I stand corrected. My right. information had that it did. Anyway, in any regard, we're here to focus on JFK, obviously. And, right. and, right. uh, the, I mean, the chapter of your book really says it all. Blakey buries the case. In other words, all those high expectations quickly went away. First of all, let's talk about the formation. I mentioned, you know, the Sapruder film being aired on Geraldo Rivero's show in 75. Obviously very instrumental in, in getting that done.
1: But there was a lot more to it Sure. In there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That was clearly the biggest impetus, okay. I, I, at least I believe so. But that was really, if you look at historically, you really couldn't ask for a much better time or milieu uh, to really, really reopen the Kennedy case. Because you're absolutely correct. For the first time, the national audience saw the Zapruder film, which had an absolutely electric effect, all right? I'll never forget where I was, you know, watching that thing and how stunned I was when I saw it. But in addition to that, you also had, number one, the aftermath of Watergate, okay, where people now were beginning to see, hmm, wow, conspiracies really do happen. All right, And people do try and cover them up. But also, and this is something that usually gets overlooked, in the aftermath of Watergate, there were a lot of people on the Watergate committee, like Howard Baker, who felt that the CIA had a lot more to do in Watergate than they cared to admit. And so... That leftover residue started both the Pike Committee in the House and the Church Committee in the Senate. Okay? Now, for people who aren't old enough, I don't know, are you old enough to know what I'm talking about there?
0: Just barely. (laughs)
1: Okay. Those, that really, historically speaking, those two committees were the only time that the CIA and the FBI were really investigated by congress okay and if you can get the church committee volumes very difficult to get you'll see the the only investigation ever done you know by the of the intelligence community by congress all right and i should add one more thing in 1975 when the church committee was beginning there was also the revelation about the Oswald visiting the FBI office in Dallas. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about there, supposedly sometime between November the 7th and November the 12th, Oswald visited the FBI headquarters in Dallas. The guy who was supposed to be handling his case file, Jim Hosty, wasn't there. So, Oswald supposedly left a note. Uh, I think two days after the assassination, after Oswald was killed, Gordon Shanklin, the chief agent in the Dallas office, uh, was told by his upper level management guys in Washington that the note needed to be destroyed. So obviously nobody knows what the note says, you know, and there's been various stories as to what it said. The most common story is that Oswald left a message saying that he that Hosty better stop talking to his wife or he's gonna blow up the FBI headquarters. I've never bought that story because if somebody actually left a note saying that, okay, why would the FBI destroy it? Number one. And number two, why wouldn't they interrogate Oswald making a threat to blow up a building with dozens of people in it?
0: Exactly. Okay? Exactly.
1: Yeah. So I've never really found that a very credible story. But we're never going to know what the real story was, you know, because... Well, anyway, that story got out there for the first time. To set the stage, in 1974, there was something called the Rockefeller Commission, which was the forerunner to the Church Committee. The Rockefeller Commission did a very mini-limited hangout in the Kennedy case. It had to be because... David Bellin was the chief counsel, so it ended up being a joke. Then you had the Church Committee, much better investigation, led by Senator Richard Schweiker and Senator Gary Hart. That's called Book 5 of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Performance of the Intelligence Agencies as Far as the Warren Commission Went. That was a really negative report about how the FBI and the CIA performed their functions in giving information to the Warren Commission. It was especially hard on the FBI.
0: Did it not also sort of connect some dots in terms of the CIA's role in other assassinations?
1: Oh, well, no, that didn't do that, but the Church Committee itself did that.
0: Yes, that's what because I Because mean. there's
1: another book to the Church Committee which actually explores those assassination plots. In the larger sense, yes, it did. The church committee did do that. They investigated a lot of the plots that the CIA was involved in, you know, up to, up to that time. Like I said, you could hardly ask for a better atmosphere, you know, for a better season, you know, for a better time to really find out who killed John F. Kennedy. You literally had everything going for you. After the Zapruder film was shown, which I believe was in the summer of 1975, the accumulative effect of all these things was to let's go ahead and re-investigate. And you specifically named the guy Tom Downing. I don't think you said his name. I didn't. You said, Virginia,
0: was, representative it. from Virginia.
1: Right. Tom Downing got his own private screening of the Zapruder film through his son, by the way. It's a law student at the University of Virginia. Okay, Groden showed him, Bob Groden showed him the Zapruder film. And Tom Downing was really kind of outraged when he saw this thing. So he then submitted a bill, and there was more than one bill, and it took him a long time. I mean, this guy deserves so much credit because, man, did he have to work to get this thing passed. And some of the speeches he made on the floor of Congress... Are really something to read today.
0: I got to take a time out. We'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll talk right. about the, the formation of the House Select Committee on Assassinations and the makeup, which is very interesting. Some of the, uh, the, the, the homicide prosecutors that were part of this. Back with more. JFK Connecting the Dots, Episode 6 here on The Conspiracy Show. truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren. Welcome back. Episode 6 of our continuing series on JFK Connecting the Dots with assassination researcher James D. Eugenio, author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. Quickly, Jim, tell people how they can get that book.
1: Well, you can get it um, um, by either going to Amazon.com or you can go to the book's website, DestinyBetrayed.com uh, and there's a number of ways on that website uh, that you can go ahead and order the book. And it, it's available in the, in the bigger bookstores also. And this but is, those are the two best ways.
0: And we should point out, this is uh, this is the second edition. The first one came out nearly uh, well, over 20 years ago. But there's yeah, been so, so much...
1: over 20 years ago. And there's so much new material that's been declassified by the Assassinations Record Review Board.
0: Which came out decided, of the... Which was one of the things that came out of the, H- the HSCA, did it not? The assassination you know, record? The ARB
1: was- originated with Oliver Stone's movie. Okay, in 1992. Okay, the first legislation was passed. It declassified a lot of the House Select Committee files that were classified. For example, the Lopez report had been classified by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, but with the ARB, that's been pretty much fully declassified now. Right, so that that's how you can get my book, and and the book is a it's a complete rewrite, which I'm sure you're aware of. Yes, it's about a 95% rewrite because all this new material is just so sensational, you know, the new stuff that's been declassified.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh, so we were let's talk about the makeup. Okay, so there's there's
1: how to get my book. Now we were talking about Tom Downing, right?
0: Yes, yes, the representative from Virginia. His son uh, got him a copy of the Zapruder film, and when he saw it. Uh, He tried to move heaven and earth to get this bill passed to to form this committee. And it took him
1: quite a while. It took him month after month after month making speech after speech after speech on the floor. you know. And then finally, he got the thing the bill authorized. The unfortunate thing about the House Select Committee is that Downing retired after he got the committee constituted. Uh, He had planned on retiring. I even asked him this question when I interviewed him down there in Newport News at his law office. And he said that, you know, he had made up his mind that he was going to go ahead and retire after 14 years in the House, you know, and he wanted this to be his last big thing, you know, was to to get the House Select Committee started. Now, a lot of people involved with the House Select Committee will tell you that if Downing had not retired, there might have been a different result because Downing and the first chief counsel, Richard Sprague, had a much better relationship than Henry Gonzalez, who was going to take over the committee. Once Downing gets the committee constituted, then he has to go ahead and find the lawyers to lead the committee. There's nominations that are submitted, and one of the guys nominated was a guy named Richard Sprague, who had been the first assistant in Philadelphia. An unbelievably cosmic irony, is that he worked for Arlen Spectre.
0: Ah, from the <laughs> Warren Commission. Yes, the author of the single bullet theory. That is ironic.
1: Right. Once Sprague was accepted, at least temporarily, he then went ahead and picked his two deputy counsels, one for the Kennedy case, one for the King case. Okay? A guy named Bob Leonard out of New York was a King guy, and a guy named Bob Tannenbaum out of uh, New York also was a guy. For the JFK case. When I talk about these guys, these guys were A number one prosecuting attorneys. Bob Tannenbaum, for example, never lost a murder case the whole time he was in the homicide department in New York. In fact, I don't think he ever lost a felony case, period. Sprague was something like at a record of uh, 77 convictions and one acquittal. And Leonard was pretty much the same. You're talking some of the really ace number one, uh, prosecuting, which would a complete difference with the Warren Commission because you, you try and find a guy there who was, you know, besides Spectre, those guys were not really criminal prosecuting attorneys. Most of the guys who worked there, some of them were real estate attorneys. Some of them were copyright attorneys. You know, very, very few of them were distinguished criminal. Lawyers, let's put it this way, they didn't compare at all to these guys.
0: Right. In fact, so, if you, you point out in your book when Tannenbaum looked at the Warren Commission, he could not believe right the, the, okay. the holes That's in the case just against exactly Oswald. That's exactly
1: the point I was going to go to now. So obviously when these guys started reviewing the work of the Warren Commission, because they were so experienced in what it actually takes to actually convict somebody in a murder case – And back then, the standard was even more difficult. You know, it was beyond a reasonable doubt to a moral certainty. Today, the to a moral certainty is dropped. But back then, it was beyond a reasonable doubt to a moral certainty. And you got 12 people. You get 12 people to agree to this. When they started looking through this material on the Warren Commission, and by the way, that's the first thing they did. They started reviewing the work of the Warren Commission. They were stunned. Like I said, you, you quoted me there. Tannenbaum couldn't believe it. He was kind of shocked at the amount of exculpatory material that was left out of the Warren report. And so as they progressed through, they began to see that there were some very serious problems with this case. One of the things that they did is they commissioned a photographic slideshow by the best experts in photography on the case – Robert Cutler, Bob Groden, and the guy who was the best back then, Dick Sprague. This show went on for hours on end. And Sprague was the last guy. His show went on for four hours. And by the time it was over, when I talked to Al Lewis, who was one of the guys that Sprague brought in from Pennsylvania, he said, out of the 13 attorneys, 12 of us realized Oswald was not guilty. <laughs> once that was over right and so for the first time now everybody was excited they're finally going to investigate the Kennedy case experienced prosecutors who don't have an agenda and essentially want to find the truth are going to try and find out who killed JFK. People like Cyril Wacht and Gaten Fonzi you know were exuberant all right because Bob Tannenbaum picked up Fonzi from the church Committee. Sprague submits a budget, and once he submits the budget, the first signs begin to see that a lot of people don't want this case really investigated. Because you could tell from that budget that Sprague put together, this was not going to be simply a review and ratification of the Warren Commission. They were going to investigate every single aspect of this case, from A to Z. They were going to accept nothing that the Warren Commission did. They were not going to use any federal investigators. And, of course, this had been the bete noir of the Warren Commission, is that they relied on the FBI, the Secret Service, and the CIA to invest largely, now not completely, but a whole vast majority of their inquiry was made up by those three bodies. And you can that's right in the warning report, by the way. Just go ahead and look at the warning report in the, in the acknowledgement section, and they'll tell you right there. The vast majority of stuff they got was from the FBI, the Secret Service, and the CIA. And so Sprague said, no, 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 no. We're, we are not going to use any federal investigators. I'm going to hire my own investigators. And I'm going to have my own analysts also to go through documents. I'm not going to rely on anything that the Warren Commission did. And I'm not going to rely on anything that any federal investigator did previous to me. Because that's the only way. See, Sprague understood that a really big, big problem with this case was a fact that nobody believed it. I mean, a lot of people really did not trust the government anymore. And it began with the Warren Commission. He said, we have to reestablish credibility. And the only way we're going to reestablish credibility is if we use our own investigators. That's exactly what he did. He was going to use his own investigators and hire them on their own. Now, not only was this a problem, not only was this a problem, but another thing that Sprague said he was going to do, he was going to do as much possible as he could in public. See, this was another problem with the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission essentially did almost everything in private. And so they essentially locked themselves away for nine or ten months. And then with this big press hubbleu at the end, in September of nineteen sixty four, they said Oswald's guilty. But they didn't publish the evidence until a month later, in October. This is another problem that Sprague understood. You know, we have to be open with the public. We have to do as much as we possibly can, you know, with everyone invited. So we will have credibility. You know, when we decide exactly what happened, we want people to know that we did as much as we possibly could in the open. Okay?
0: From the get-go, right. though, Jim, from the get-go, uh, because as you point out in in, in Destiny Betrayed, you had uh, Tannenbaum, the New York homicide prosecutor, He visited and met with some of the former members of the church committee, Schweiker. And and what did Schweiker tell Tannenbaum from the get go?
1: He went in there with his chief investigator, Cliff Fenton. All right. And they had a general backgrounder. And then Schweiker asked to meet with him alone. So Fenton left and it was just Tannenbaum and Schweiker. And Schweiker turned over the file on Maurice Bishop that they had done for the church committee. And he said, once you read this, you'll understand the CIA killed President Kennedy. And Tannenbaum told me that this really impressed him because Schweiker, well, let's put it this way, Schweiker was sort of the downing of the Senate on the Kennedy case. He was a guy who had really, really done a lot of work. Even more than Gary Hart. And he really knew what the heck he was talking about. And he was a Republican. On top of that. Right, right. So he didn't have any political partisanship. You know, there was no axe to grind. And so when he, when he, when Tannenbaum heard this from him, he took this very, very seriously. That's one of the things. In fact, when I interviewed Schweiker, I asked him, I said, if you would have been allowed to be on part of the investigation, if the church committee had really investigated the JFK case, what would you have done? He said, I would have found out who Maurice Bishop was. So, and I guess we have to talk about yeah, who Maurice Bishop
0: exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We have a okay. couple of minutes. So right. let's-
1: now, wh- because Antonio Vesciana was one of the leaders of Alpha 66, one of the more radical and militant um, anti-Castro groups in America, sponsored by the CIA. And Vesciana said the case officer for Alpha 66 was Maurice Bishop. Okay, which was an alias. Alright, so Fonzie made it his business to find out who the heck Maurice Bishop really was. And if you read his book, The Last Investigation, he makes a very, very strong case that Maurice Bishop was David Phillips. And now, we can talk about David Phillips for about three days. Okay, but, but David Phillips is a very, very interesting character because number one, he was part of the leadership of the CIA's anti-Fair Play for Cuba Committee campaign in the summer of 1963. Why is that important? Because it sure as heck looks like that's what Oswald was doing in the summer of 1963. He was an agent provocateur for the CIA, discrediting the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Right. Secondly. David Phillips is in Mexico City. He runs the anti-Cuba operations from Mexico City. And he has a very interesting role in the whole thing about Oswald going to Mexico City. Number three, before Phillips died, he had a conversation with his brother, James Phillips. right? And Phillips always suspected that his brother had something to do with the Kennedy assassination. So he asked him in his last call were you in Dallas the day Kennedy was murdered? And Phillips started weeping and said, yes. And his brother was so disgusted that he hung up on him. And that's the last time they ever talked. Wow. So that's why David Phillips is a very interesting character. David He's Phillips in,
0: slash Maurice Bishop working both sides of the street. Yeah. Uh, agent provocateur for the uh, uh, Fair Play for Cuba.
1: New Orleans, Mexico City, Dallas. All He's right. in Let's, all three places.
0: We'll take a time, I'll come back. Destiny Betrayed with... James D. Eugenio, episode six of our JFK series here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serring. To talk to Richard, call 416 360 0740. Welcome back. James D. Eugenio stays with us, author of Destiny Betrayed, as we uh, look at the Kennedy assassination through the lens of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Uh, Again, uh, this committee formed, uh, you know, there was was great uh, promise uh, uh, and and optimism that this committee, uh, with its top-notch uh, prosecutors was going to really get to the bottom of the Kennedy assassination. And uh, obviously, we're skipping ahead. There's you know, far more details, and people can can, can get the book and, and discover this. But I want to talk about uh, how this thing began to unravel and this concerted media campaign to derail the whole process and, and get rid of um, guys like Sprague. How did, why, why, what was going on there?
1: Well, there was there was no doubt – that that's the, and as you can see in my book, that's that the, the overwhelming evidence was that the media, you know, along with certain parts of the intelligence agencies, you know, who used some of their assets in Congress to attack the committee, you know, this was the combination that eventually uh, caused the unraveling of the initial stage of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. I don't know if there's any question about that today, all right? Now, what do I what do I mean by that? Very specifically, it was the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the L.A. Times were the leaders. Now, those by far and away, those were not the only ones, but those were the main ones who started to go after Sprague. This was less, less actually led by the New York Times. A guy named David Burnham, you know, who was sent to Philadelphia. The first guy they had in the New York Times was actually pretty good on Sprague, okay? They removed him and replaced him with this guy named David Burnham, okay, who was obviously on assignment. And he wrote a five-part series about Sprague, you know, based from his, you know, visits to the Philadelphia Inquirer morgue, okay? And... Every single one of them was derogatory, and at the end of the five-day series, the New York Times went ahead and printed an editorial demanding that Sprague resign. Here's a guy who had – see, this, by the way, is the reason I go into Jim Garrison's background, okay, in one of the early chapters of my book, because like like Garrison – Sprague had an impeccable record until he took on the Kennedy assassination. Suddenly, once he takes on the Kennedy assassination, he's an irresponsible, uh, nincompoop who is in bed with the mob. (laughs) (laughs) Which of course was utterly ridiculous. Okay. But they were trying to create a controversy around him. Okay. In other words, they were trying to polarize opinion. And this is a recurrent CIA tactic, of course. You want to polarize opinion so you can marginalize. Okay? Let me just, uh, let me just,
0: let me just quote from your book here because uh, th- this really sums it up nicely. The Washington Post uh, reporter Walter Pincus called the House Select Committee on Assassination in February of 1977, quote, perhaps the worst example of congressional inquiry run amok, end quote.
1: Right. And by the way, and Pincus. Uh, was an intern for the CIA. All right, they, we've dug that up. Aha, uh-huh. interesting. And all he right. does these kind of jobs for them all the time. Okay, now, now, once the New York Times thing was in, it was then joined by the Post, which you just quoted, and then it was joined by the L.A. Times. The L.A. Times um, printed an article trying to attack Sprague for wanting to use electronic surveillance all right, in um, his investigation, which was not really true at all, okay, not really true at all, okay, Sprague wanted to use something called a PSC, which was a kind of mini lie detector, okay, you know, uh, he wasn't going to tap anybody's phone or anything like that, he just wanted to use them, they were in their experimental stage by then, you know, to test witnesses, okay, that's all, all right, And so he had budgeted that into the budget. So they used this to say that he was going to be somehow trampling on people's civil liberties, which, which absolutely crazy. Okay. But that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to start polarizing opinion around Sprague. So then of course, once this started, then other forms of media then picked it up. Okay. You know, like TV, even PBS. All right, picked it up. All right. And so they succeeded. They succeeded in going ahead and po- and polarizing opinion against Sprague. All right. And so it was a, it was it, the the HSCA was what we call a special committee or a select committee. In other words, its budget is not built into the um, congressional rules. So, it has to come up for renewal every year. And the CIA and the media did such a good job in polarizing opinion around Sprague, making him a lightning rod. And then they stuck provocateurs in the House Select Committee to rile up Gonzalez against Sprague, you know, that Gonzalez resigned, okay, and then... After he resigned, it became clear that the committee could not survive as long as Sprague was still there.
0: All right, got to take a time out, Jim. We'll be back on the other side as we talk about the House Select Committee on Assassinations with James D. Eugenio here on The Conspiracy Show. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Last segment uh, of the evening with James Eugenio, author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. Tonight we're examining the work of the U.S. Uh, Select Committee on Assassinations. And uh, I, I want to jump ahead here. We don't have a lot of time, but um, uh, Sprague eventually resigns in, I think, 1977. But as you point right. out in the book, something very significant happens within 24 hours. One of the key witnesses that had been subpoenaed. Tell me about what happened. Right.
1: George George Mornschild turns up dead in Florida the day that um, he was subpoenaed by Gayton Fonzie.
0: Remind us who he and,
1: was. Well, George Mornschild was a very, very important character because he was essentially instructed by the CIA to go ahead and be the handler for Lee Harvey Oswald once he got back from Russia, and he was the guy who introduced him into the white Russian community and essentially introduced him to Ruth and Michael Payne, who become when Oswald, oh, excuse me, when George moved to Haiti in May. Well, the Paynes essentially took his place. Now he ends up dead. There's no real in- investigation by the House Select Committee, and obviously, if that if Sprague would have been in charge, there because the DA down there said I was kept on waiting for the House Select Committee to send down an investigator, and nobody came down, okay? They should have been all over that case, because as I wrote in my book, the death of the morning child is very, very, very suspect for a lot of different reasons. So anyway, once he leaves, Tannenbaum, first Tannenbaum, and then Al Lewis, then become the interim leaders, and then they have a serious problem because of what happened to Sprague, Nobody wants the job, okay? Yeah, it's
0: like getting named so, the manager of the New York Yankees.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, nobody wants the job, and but finally, they come up with this law professor from Cornell named Bob Blakey. Now, from just that little description I gave you, all right, um, you can see that there's a difference between Blakey and Sprague. Because Blakey is really more of an academic.
0: He's not a prosecutor.
1: You know, then he, then he was a practicing prosecutor. Sprague has, was, had been doing this for years on end, prosecuted literally scores of cases, you know, whereas, you know, Blakey really was, the only prosecutorial experience he had was as a flunky. And by the way, that's his word, not my word, you know, in the Justice Department.
0: Under, under Robert
1: Kennedy. Under Bobby Kennedy, right. Okay. And so, so now Blakey comes in, and as I write in the book, the thing to understand about Blakey is he reversed a lot of the policies Sprague had. Okay, number one, he did not do everything out in the open. Uh, he called a press conference to announce that there wouldn't be any more press conferences. He did not rework all of the things at the warning. In fact, what's really shocking is when you study... The work of the House Select Committee is they accept so much of what the Warren Commission wrote in the Warren Report. For example, they never questioned really the whole concept of the crime scene on the sixth floor. If you read what they say, you know, they go with the so-called rifle that which we discussed, okay, which is very questionable. They go with the so-called three shells. At the scene, they go with the whole second floor encounter between Marion Baker and Oswald in the second floor lunchroom, and they go with Oswald leaving and, and the whole taxi cab and busting, okay. Which is all very, and they have uh, they have Oswald shooting tippet. okay. So they went with all of this stuff, okay, which de- demanded the utmost scrutiny. All right, and then to. What made it even worse is that – see, one of the things Frege and Tannenbaum were going to do is they were not going to do any deals with the FBI or CIA. All right?
0: In fact, the CIA made it pretty clear they weren't going to cooperate with them.
1: Right. Okay. And so they were going to actually go to court. All right? To get access to the files without any preconditions. All right? Well, Blakey made a deal with the FBI and the CIA – that he would have access, but they would have ultimate veto power. Which What that meant was this. Say, for example, Eddie Lopez and Dan Hardway are investigating Mexico City. The CIA gives them access to all these files. And, and they did, by the way, at least most of them. All right? And so they write this incredible report. One of the greatest reports I've ever seen about the inner workings of the CIA. Well, here was the problem. When it came time to publish the report as part of the House Select Committee volumes, the CIA had veto power over what was going to go into the report published and what was not going to go into the report. So Eddie told me, Jim, you know why the report was not part of the volumes? And I said, no, not really. And he said, because we, me, Dan, a lawyer from the staff, and Blakey, met with four CIA guys to go over the report page by page. It took us something like eight hours to get through the first two paragraphs. So after the first day, you know, Blakey's essentially threw in the towel and, because the report is 300 pages long. In other words, they would have been there for over a year. Okay.
0: Going, right, right.
1: Going through the report. Well, so it, right? it seems
0: like, like where Sprague and Tannenbaum uh, – You know, maybe because of what they heard from Schweiker, were, were intent on sort of focusing on maybe the role of the CIA and, and the FBI, whereas for whatever reason, and you tell me, Blakey wanted to totally switch courses and, and, and look at the mob as maybe, maybe being the purpose behind
1: this. Right. See, Gaten Fonzie actually told me this. He said, Jim, from the first day, the very took, when he took over, you know, that's what he was concerned with. How can we tie the mafia into this? And what he wanted to do more than anything else was to go ahead and imprint that on the imagination of the public, you know, in a kind of Jungian way, you know, that, that the mob killed Kennedy. And he said it got worse and worse as more and more evidence turned up that the CIA was actually behind it. It got worse and worse as time went on until finally, Finally, when the day after the House Select Committee report came out, which didn't really make any judgments about who had really killed Kennedy, Blakey came out with his own private press conference and said the mob killed Kennedy. And then he went ahead and wrote this book okay, with Dick Billings, who was the uh, staff writer for the House Select Committee, in which they called the plot to kill the president – Later reissued his fatal hour in which they said the mob killed Kennedy, which almost nobody agrees with today. If you go to any reputable researcher, the mob might very likely have been involved, but they didn't kill Kennedy.
0: One of the, okay. you, you may, there's a very interesting uh, uh, point you bring up in, the, in in this chapter, and that has to do with the CIA liaison with the committee, a guy by the name of Regis Blayhut. Who was Blayhut?
1: Oh, th- this was one of the most fascinating things that we got from the declassified files. Blayhut was a CIA liaison with the committee. All right. In other words, he arranged things, you know, access for things with the committee and the CIA. He was supposed to be in charge of the uh, access to, among other things, the autopsy materials. Well, to make a long story short, it looks like, Blahat exceeded his authority and tried to take one of the autopsy photographs home to study. And when the HSCA discovered this, Blahat tried to deny it. But he flunked, I think, what was it? You just read it, right? Was it two polygraph tests? I think he flunked two polygraph tests. And they found his fingerprints on the inside of the safe. He tried to say the picture was just sitting on top of the safe and he just picked it up. Right. Well, that couldn't be true because his fingerprints were found on the inside, inside of the
0: safe. Inside? Yes, yes. Oh
1: my. Okay. All right. And so then the CIA, of course, did not want this publicized because it would have made him look even worse, you know. And so they had a meeting with Blakey and they outlined him four different options he could have. Says, you could investigate it. The Washington police could investigate it. You could hire an independent outside thing to investigate it, or we could investigate it. And Haviland Smith, the guy who was running the the meeting, said, I try to discourage him from picking us because I said, you won't, you won't have very much credibility if you pick us. But he insisted on the CIA investigating the Blayhead affair. Yeah, now, three,
0: three, he failed three polygraph tests.
1: Tells you, that essentially tells you all you need to know about Rob Blakey. Was he,
0: was he trying – he was trying to protect the CIA?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's pretty obvious. Okay? I think it's pretty obvious he was trying to do that. Okay? And then when people tried to advise him about this, you know, he said, oh, come on. I've been working with these guys for 20 years. They never lie to me. <laughs> <laughs> he really said that. Oh, he really my. said that. That I mean, it okay. totally shifted the
0: depressed. focus, didn't it? It totally shifted the focus yeah. of, of the – Um, how select committees on assassinations work. They were, they were, do you think had Sprague and Tannenbaum, uh, continued along the road they were going, what, what do you think would have happened?
1: Well, see, that is a really, really, really interesting question. And I guess that's one of the best questions you could ask. Okay. What would have happened if Sprague and Tannenbaum were allowed to actually go ahead and continue? Let's put it this way. With what I know about this case today, and what I know about Sprague and Tannenbaum, they would have eventually somehow, some way, they would have found a way to blow up that committee because simply Sprague and Tannenbaum were incorruptible. They would have eventually got to the bottom of things. And I don't think the CIA and I don't think the media and I don't think Washington would have let that happen. I, you know, I, I hate to say that. I really do. But if you learn something about this case, that's what you learn. You know, it's like what you, that thing you begin your show with from that movie, A Few Good Men. What's that great line? Oh, you
0: can't uh, handle the truth.
1: Yeah, right. Well, see, this country can't handle the truth about the Kennedy assassination. Okay, it's only through shows like yours and several others that they actually get the full airing of the facts. This country can't handle the truth about the JFK case. You know?
0: So, Jim, uh, from here, do you want to spend some time talking about Garrison? In the in the next episode, oh, we haven't
1: done that
0: yet. We have not. I mean, I know it's sort of we, as I say, we're coming oh, out from perspective. you saving the best for last. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> Was that it? Was that the strategy? You're saving the best for last.
0: Well, I just, you know, rather than doing it in, in, in sort of a linear fashion necessarily, we're sort of, you know, we're we're.
1: No, you jumped around the book. We did, but yeah.
0: I, I, I I think we should talk about Garrison. Why don't we do that the next okay.
1: time? Okay, fine.
0: All right. Thank you, Jim. We'll talk next. Uh, well. Maybe we'll uh, we'll pick it up uh, later in September.
1: All right, that's fine.
0: James DiEugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. Hey, say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, the website, www.richardserrett.com. And as always, follow the truth wherever it leads.